Well, today we will be taking a, taking a look at uh, Revelation chapter 14, but I'd like for you actually to open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. You'll understand here in just a little bit why I'm having you open up there. Revelation 7 and starting in verse 1, it says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the winds should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So, of course, we studied this chapter in the past, and that is where 144,000 Jews are on the earth during the Great Tribulation, they're, they're sealed as servants of God on their foreheads. But what is this seal that is on their foreheads? We didn't talk about it back when we looked at this chapter, but let's go ahead and turn now to our chapter for today, chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14 and we'll start reading in verse 1 after the plane goes over. Hopefully no bombs are being dropped. <laughs> yeah. um, verse 1, Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him one hundred and 44,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. So that's what the seal is that was on those 144,000 Jews back in chapter 7. That's the seal that they had put on their foreheads. It is the name of God the Father that is written there. So John now sees this revelation this information that he has received from Jesus, he now sees Jesus himself standing on Mount Zion, and he's not standing alone. He has 144,000 Jews that were sealed standing with him. At, they were sealed at the beginning of the tribulation back in Revelation chapter 7. Now they're pictured here in this vision standing on Mount Zion with Jesus. Right? Because, but this here presents a little bit of a dilemma. If you've been following along, what I'm saying right here can present kind of a dilemma for us. Because if you turn back a moment to Revelation chapter 13, just one chapter back, you might not even have to turn the page, but we start reading in verse 14 of chapter 13. Speaking of the second beast, the false prophet it says, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth 
by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So anyone that did not worship the image of the beast was killed. So then what about these 144,000 that were sealed with the name of God, of the Father, on their foreheads? How is it that they are in chapter 14, they're standing on Mount Zion with Jesus? If in chapter 13 we read that anyone that didn't worship the beast or take the mark was killed. Were they killed or were they not killed, these 144,000? Well, some would say... No, they were obviously not killed because here they are standing on Mount Zion with Jesus. I think we're in the flight path of uh, the Air Force today. (laughs) So again, some would say, well, it's obvious that they weren't killed. Here they are on... Mount Zion with Jesus. Well, well, what about chapter 13 where it says as many as would not worship the image of the beast would be killed. So this is, that's why I say this is somewhat of a dilemma. But let's turn for a few minutes. I want to show you something. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. I know there's a Christian coffee shop out there called Hebrews. I think that's a cool name for a Christian coffee shop. Hebrews chapter 12. And let's start reading down in verse 18. For if you for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But... You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable innumerable company of angels. So the word of God is saying here that when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they're not coming to the law of Moses. That's what's being described here. Nor are they coming to things and places that pertain to that period of time. Instead, when you come to Jesus, you're coming to a heavenly Jerusalem. That is the Mount Zion that a person comes to by faith today. You see, in case you didn't know, the hills around Jerusalem, all the hills that surround the city of Jerusalem are called Zion. That's where that term comes from. The mountains, the hills around Jerusalem are called Zion. It's awesome if you want to go and visit Jerusalem today, but going to the hills around Jerusalem, going to the physical Mount Zion, does nothing 
to bring you salvation and a newness of life. We must instead come to Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews here calls coming to that place in Christ, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. So back in Revelation chapter 14 now, we can turn back there, where John sees Jesus standing on Mount Zion. Is this the heavenly Mount Zion? Or is it the literal Mount Zion? In other words, is it a heavenly Mount Zion represented in this vision that John is seeing? Right? Or is it the literal Mount Zion, the present day hills that today surround Jerusalem? Is that what John is seeing Jesus stand on that Mount Zion? Right? In this part of the vision that John is seeing, um, again, that's the question that we're left with. Is he standing on the literal Mount Zion or a heavenly Mount Zion? You see, if it is the literal Mount Zion, well then we can say that the 144,000 Jews that were sealed at the start of the tribulation were not killed during the tribulation. Which to me contradicts Revelation chapter 13 where we read that everyone who did not worship the beast was killed. But if it is the heavenly Mount Zion upon, upon which Jesus and the 144,000 are standing in this vision of John's, then we can conclude that the 144,000 indeed were martyred during the tribulation. And some would then say, well, well then what good did it do that they were sealed at the start of the tribulation? Well, to me that question can be simply answered by saying that they did their job of ministering. And when that time was up, they were killed and their souls were redeemed by the Lord. Because I can't dismiss Revelation chapter 13, where everyone was killed that did not worship or take the mark. Okay? So, if you wish, you can still see this as a dilemma. Again, I don't get dogmatic about the teachings of the book of Revelation. I do get dogmatic about the teachings of the gospel and the teachings that pertain to how we should be living now. But when it comes to Revelation, men and women today have found many ways to dispute the interpretations of it. There are a thousand more interpretations than there are chapters when it comes to it. So again, either way you go, it's up to you. I tend to look at the Bible very simplistically. I look at what it says and I, I, I go and look for scriptures like we did here with Hebrews and say, okay, well, there's this heavenly Mount Zion that, that I believe the Apostle Paul and Hebrews wrote about. That's also a dispute. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? But personally, it causes no dilemma to me because I realize that John is seeing a vision here. We, we must keep that in mind, that John is seeing a vision. And from my personal experience, whenever the Lord has given me a vision or a dream that He has allowed me to then have the interpretation of, I have found that the interpretation of that dream is never chronological. In other words, the sequence of the events and the vision or the dream itself, they're never in order when it comes to the interpretation that I get from it. I could have something at the end of a dream interpreted to me that was at the beginning of the dream and vice versa, right? I, you know, and I'll speak on that again here in just a little bit. But in regards to Jesus and the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion here, I have no problem with seeing this uh, as just a portion of the information that John is receiving from the Lord. And it could be that Jesus is standing on the literal Mount Zion or he's standing on a heavenly Mount Zion. But we do know from Revelation 
13. And that's the important message here. We do know that anyone that did not worship the beast, bow to his image, take the mark, they were killed. So I lean toward the 144,000 having been killed during that period of time as well, and then being redeemed by the Lord. And we'll, we'll see that more as we go on as well. So with that being said, we move on into verse 2 of chapter 14. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. So whose voice is this that John hears? It is the voice of God. How do we know that? Well, if we flip back, go ahead and mark this page and flip back to Revelation chapter 1. I'll read verse 2 again while you go there. John says, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And I said, who is, who, Whose voice is this? And I say, It's the voice of God. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, Revelation 1, 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the waist with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. So there it is again. His voice as the sound of many waters. The Apostle John is describing Jesus Christ. And we know from Scripture that Jesus is God. And back in chapter 14 of Revelation and verse 2, John hears a voice that he describes as being like the voice of many waters. Back in chapter 14, verse 2 again, right? He hears this voice that he describes as being the voice of many waters. He sees Jesus on Mount Zion with 144,000, and the voice of many waters comes out of heaven. This is the first time, I should say this is not the first time, that God can speak from two different places. There is one God, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John, remember, is also the same one who wrote in 1 John 5-7. He said there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, which of course we know the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, which is Jesus. So John in, in 1 John 5, 7 says there's three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And he said these three are one. So one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So back in Revelation 14 again, John hears the voice of God from heaven in verse 2. He also hears the sound of harpists playing their harps. And then in verse 3, he says, They sang, as it were, a new song. 
So who is singing this song right here? The harpist. Who are they? We're not told. We're simply told here in verse 3 that they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So there are harpists in heaven before the throne of God, right? Could be angels, could be the church, could be the born-again believers that were raptured off of the earth before the start of the tribulation. But again, we're not specifically told here who they are. They sing this song that no one else from earth or no one else on earth can learn except those 144,000 Jews that were redeemed by the Lord. They're the ones that can learn it. And we see very clearly there in verse 3 that these 144,000 that were sealed at the start of the tribulation will be indeed redeemed from the earth, as we see there in verse 3. So what else are we told about the 144,000? Verse 4 says, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. So these 144,000 Jews were not taken in the rapture of the church, but instead they were on the earth at the start of the tribulation. However, they were sealed to not be harmed for at least a period of time. They were then redeemed from the earth, and they stood on Mount Zion with the Lord. And them standing on Mount Zion with the Lord simply depicts their redemption. Because we went into Hebrews and we saw where the Apostle Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, if you will, he talked, he talked about that heavenly Mount Zion that we come to by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So this is simply a picture of these 144,000 being redeemed by Jesus Christ, just like the church was previously redeemed by Jesus Christ during the rapture before the start of the tribulation. Okay, So... And from that standpoint, then, these 144,000 are simply followers of Jesus and will follow him wherever he goes. And verse 5 tells us that in their mouth was not, or in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you here. You see, these 144,000 Jews lived in purity at least for the period of time during the tribulation. They kept themselves pure, and they are depicted here as followers of Jesus. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So they are depicted as a follower of Jesus. They did not speak lies. They did not speak deceit. As a result, they were redeemed, and they stood with Jesus on Mount Zion. So there's a picture that we get from this here that we need to understand. And that is, is that today, when a person comes to Jesus Christ and is born again, this is the life they are coming to. They have repented from the ways of this world. They have repented from impurity, from lies, from deceit. And then what happens is one day they're redeemed off the earth by the Lord. And Revelation here is painting a picture of that for us. Now, a believer may die on the earth, and their souls will be redeemed, or, or they may go in the rapture without having died on the earth. 
But we get a picture here again with these 144,000 faithful Jews that they remained pure before the Lord after they became his followers. And it's important that we as modern day believers understand how we are expected to live as well. Now, we have looked at these scriptures in the past, and I've brought these scriptures up on a few different occasions, but I want you to turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And let's start reading in verse 11, Titus 2.11. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm using an illustration here of how we see these 144,000 Jews living and the fact that they were redeemed and the fact that they stood on Mount Zion and the fact that they were followers of Jesus Christ and they followed him wherever he may go. And to me, it depicts to us a picture of how we should be living today as modern day believers in Jesus Christ after we have come to a relationship with Christ. Okay? Because we hear a lot today about grace, 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 right? And rightfully so, but we should understand what grace is all about. And in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation. So we know what kind of grace we're talking about here. We're talking about the grace that everybody talks about, the grace that brings salvation. Has appeared to all men, not a select few men. Not a certain amount of people, but to all men. God's grace is offered to all. What does it do? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now keep in mind the 144,000 Jews, how they lived. They lived in purity. They did not lie. They did not speak lies and deceit and all that. They were redeemed and they stood with the Lord. We're told here that we should deny ungodliness. We should deny worldly lust. We should, we should live soberly. We should live righteously. We should live godly in this present age. Why? Because we're, verse 13, because we're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the blessed hope, the return of Jesus Christ and us being with him. And in verse 14, it says of Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself for himself his own special people zealous for good works so that's what the lord has done he has redeemed us from lawless deeds to purify us purify us and we can look at the 144,000 and get a picture of a people that did that and then in verse 15 it says speak these things exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. In other words as believers in Jesus Christ and as a teacher of the word of God it's my job to point you to scriptures that speak these kind of things and exhort you to live in the way that the word of God tells us we should live. Because this time is short. Our life here is temporary and there will is an eternity awaits. There is a blessed hope, as verse 13 says, and that is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where will we be when he appears? How are we living now? So the 144,000 of Revelation, to me, are just a good example of what we as believers should be living like today. We are to deny ungodliness. 
Okay, all those things we just read about there. Because the reason that Jesus died is like it says there, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's what we should be. We should be zealous for good works. In a study several months back, we talked about that word zealous, and it's often used in such a negative way, but it's a very positive word. We're supposed to be zealous. We're supposed to be zealous for good works. So as we flip back to Revelation chapter 14, these are the things we know and that we can learn from in regards to the 144,000. And then in verse 6, John moves on and says, so Revelation 14, 6, he says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So the 144,000 Jews have done their job and they've been redeemed. And now the angels are preaching the gospel. So the gospel started with John the Baptist. Think about it. The, 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 the gospel started with John the Baptist proclaiming repentance. Jesus came onto the scene and preached the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus went back up into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit upon believers, and they preached the gospel all the way up till now. The believers, the church that preaches the gospel today, will one day be redeemed off of the earth. And the 144,000 that will be here during the tribulation, they will proclaim the gospel. The 144,000 will be redeemed and will stand on Mount Zion with Jesus Christ. And the angels will then preach the gospel. Say, in verse 7 says, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is falling. Fallen is fallen, the great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of her wrath and her fornication. You see, this world is one great big Babylon. It's a place full of sin, wickedness, murder, envy, strife, deceit, sickness, disease, on and on it goes. But the hour of judgment is coming for this world. As the first angel says in verse 7, and that angel tells the world the same thing that believers today should be letting the world know. And that is fear God. Give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him. Worship who? Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. That's who, are to, who we are to worship. The one who made heaven, earth, and the sea and the springs of water. And the second angel pronounces the judgment in verse 8. That's, sim that's, that's a, a, a simple as I look at what Babylon is here. Babylon is a representation of the sinful world that we are now not supposed to be of. We're in the world, not supposed to be of the world. Then verse 9 says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Now pause right there for a moment. This third angel is telling people not to worship the beast, nor to receive the mark, right? But in chapter 13, 
Again, we saw in chapter 13 where anyone that did not worship the beast and take the mark was killed. This is why I said earlier that the interpretation of a vision or a dream is not always chronological. But the chronology of Revelation is, is not as important as the message of Revelation. And what we see here is that the gospel is preached all the way till the end. The gospel never stops being preached. It's preached all the way till the end. People are warned not to worship the beast. And today, Satan is what we call the little g God of this world. Not the capital G God, but the little g God of this world, right? And if a person is not a follower of Jesus Christ, the one who, and they're not worshiping the one who created heaven and earth and the spring and the seas, and, well, then who are they worshiping? Because everybody's worshiping someone. Everybody's following something. It's either the ways of this world or it is the ways of the word of God. So the gospel being preached is of utmost importance. Always has been, always will be. The gospel is the answer. And verse 10 continues and, and tells that one that, that does not worship the beast and take the mark shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night who worship the beast and his image. And whoever receives the mark and his image... Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus, excuse me. You see, today, we are to be patiently waiting on the Lord. Patient in temptation. Patient in trials. Not giving in to wrath and immoral living, but rather patiently keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ, like it says there. That's the patience of the saints. We are to persevere because fire and brimstone, as it says there, awaits those who are not patient in the faith, who do not continue in the faith. Fire and brimstone await. And John is now going to speak on behalf of those that are patient in the faith all the way till the end. And he says in verse 13 of them, he says, then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So you see, we are blessed when we die in the Lord. We have an everlasting rest that awaits us, but we must patiently continue in the faith and we must live in the manner that scripture tells us to live soberly righteously right denying ungodliness waiting for that blessed hope when we're going to be redeemed and verse 14 continues and says then i i looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a, a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. We know what a sickle is used for. I haven't seen sickle a sickle in 30 years, but we had one when I was a kid. And that's a sickle's use. It's a, yeah, it's a, got a handle and a curl hook on it. And you use to reap and you use to chop, chop things down and you reap from that, right? 
So here we're seeing in verse 14, this is Jesus, right? So again, the chronology is not important because he was just standing on Mount Zion and now he's on a cloud. Okay, again, this is a vision that's being interpreted to us, okay? Don't get caught up in the chronology. Just take in the message. That's the importance here. Some people spend so much time worrying over interpreting this and interpreting that, they skip right over the message. And they don't let it cut to them and make a difference in their lives. But then verse 15 says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So here Jesus redeems those. This is a picture of redemption. It's a picture of redeeming those that even have been saved during the great tribulation. Those that did not worship the beast, that did not take the mark as the angel instructed them. The Lord is redeeming them. But what about the rest of the people of the earth? What about those that did not worship the beast? What about those that did not take the mark? Verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vines of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angels thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for one thousand six hundred furlongs. So that's what happens to those that worship the beast and take the mark. They are physically destroyed and their blood is spilled. The amount of their blood is equal to up to about five feet deep, 200 miles long. So that's a lot of people and a lot of blood from the people that were left on the earth during the tribulation who took the mark, who worshiped the beast. Their bodies were destroyed and then their souls will be tormented with fire and brimstone, as we read earlier. So how is it then, how important is it then that we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ today? How important is it that people hear the gospel, repent, and respond to the gospel? Again, the gospel started with John the Baptist to Jesus, to Jesus' disciples, still gets preached in the world today. The church gets taken off. The gospel's still going to get preached. The, angel, the 144,000, then the angels are going to preach the gospel. But how important is it that we surrender to Jesus Christ? We need to follow not the ways of the world, we need to follow the ways of the Word, the ways of the Word of God. We need to be patient in faith. For if you have surrendered your life to the Lord, you've been born again, and we are to then keep ourselves pure, right? Keep ourselves from sin. 
Do we stumble in the sin? Yes. Do we make mistakes? Yes. But I'm talking about willful sin, where we repeat sin over and over. And one of the biggest sins we commit is paying no attention to our Lord and paying no attention to our God, the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs and the waters like we read, right? Pay no attention to him. We're to worship him. We're to place him first in everything. And we're to share that gospel with other people because what we're reading about in Revelation is coming. And people will be destroyed. People will be deceived first and then destroyed. And we already see the deception going on in people's lives today. So many religions preaching so many different gods, so many different faiths. And then those who you would say are without religion, who say they want nothing to do with religion, say they're atheists, or, and their, their God is their money, their God is their things, their cars, their houses, and such, right? But people need to hear the gospel. It's of utmost importance. So chapter 14 is not only a depiction of what will be in the future, but it's something that we can learn from as to how we are to live in this present day as well. Again, we're to keep ourselves undefiled from this world. We're to live righteous lives. We are to share the gospel. And one day, we're going to stand on the heavenly Mount Zion. We're going to stand with Jesus Christ, having been redeemed and taken to our eternal home. It's so easy to get caught up in this time of life that we have, this 50, 60, 70, 80 years of life that we have here and think that this is all there is and really pay no attention to who we are spiritually, who we are as souls. You see, if you go all the way back to Genesis, we find that God breathed into the nostrils of Adam. And it says, when he did, it says, man became a living soul. So we need to understand the importance of our soul and we need to care for our own soul, but also the souls of others around us because we're seeing, as we study the Bible, as we study, continue to study through the Bible, we're seeing what happens to both the saved and the unsaved. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I just pray that we will take your word to heart, Lord. That, Lord, we would not fuss and fight over interpretations of the Bible, Lord, but that we would just take the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel, we would take the message of grace, Lord, that your grace is being offered to all of mankind today. The opportunity to repent, that's what grace is. It presents the opportunity to repent. And then through faith, we are saved. It's not of our works, Lord. It's a gift of God. We didn't do anything to deserve that salvation. But I pray, Lord, that we as believers would share that truth with others. I pray, Lord, that as this teaching goes out over the Internet, Lord, that people will listen and that their hearts would be convicted of how they are living and that they would have a desire, Lord, to open up your word and to study your word and to see who is this God that created heaven and earth? Who is this God that created the land and the sea and the springs of waters? Who is this God that we are to worship? Who is this God that is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The God who came to set us free. The God who came to redeem us. The everlasting God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Bible. I pray, Lord God, that by your Spirit you will begin a work in each one of us 
that are here today and also that by your spirit you will begin a work in the lives of people around us, Lord, that we might see the opportunity to share the everlasting gospel with them. For heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail. We thank you and praise you for this day, for this week that has passed, and for the week that is ahead, we acknowledge you in our path, and we ask that you would direct our steps. We pray your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen.